Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. Before we start the program today, we have an announcement from um, PRN.FM Radio. Thanks to Audio Now, the Progressive Radio Network now has an app. All you have to do is go to the App Store on your cell phone and search the Progressive Radio Network. On this app, you can listen live to PRN shows and also to archive shows. Also, the program director tells me that the first 50 listeners getting the PRN app will also get free Super Bowl tickets for life. No, that's not that's not really true, but you will get the app anyway if you get the app, and there's lots of good shows on PRN. We have a guest today, and I, I first heard about my um, guest and his organization, which is called Life After Hate, L-A-H, last October during the neo-Nazi and white supremacy demonstrations in 
Charlottesville, Virginia, and around the dismantling of various Confederate monuments. Um, uh, my guest today is Sammy Rangel. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Oh, thanks Thanks for coming on. Uh, before we talk about your organization, uh, I think maybe I should let people know a little bit about your background. Is that okay? Sure. All right. Uh, Sammy Rangel is the executive director of Life After Hate, which is a nonprofit organization founded and run by former violent extremists. Uh, LAH's core services stem from the foundation of its members' reformed ideologies and decades of involvement within some of the world's most violent extremist organizations. LAH offers outreach, consulting, interventions, and support systems for individuals who have successfully disengaged from violent extremism, among other things. And Mr. Rangel has a Master of Social Work degree from Loyola University in Chicago, and he is the author of Forebears, F-O-U-R-B-E-A-R-S, Forebears, The Myths of Forgiveness, which is an autobiography. Um, chronicling the ongoing physical and sexual abuse he endured as a child, which eventually led him down a path of uh, self-destruction that culminated in him serving more than 15 and a half years of his life in prison, both as a juvenile and, and an adult. Can you tell me a little bit more about the book? Yeah, it, the book was really an effort to to give an inside view of how the mind is working when a person is so hurt, so angry, so violent, to help lead people towards understanding um, those behaviors and those feelings and those thoughts in effort to create uh, strategies that could be successful in intervention. Um, the second half of the book is actually a step-by-step um, review of the steps I took to change, what my change process was like, what it looked like, what it needed to consist of, what the barriers were, what the risks were, what the responses to certain things were, in an effort to help one, like other professionals, help others guide themselves through a change process, and to also maybe maybe those guys on their own trying to change would have sort of a pathway towards that change. <clears throat> and um, uh, do you, uh, in this book, uh, some little experience with... Um trying to get through uh, things like this myself in my life. Uh, is forgiveness a part of this? Absolutely. Forgiveness is, I mean, uh, forgiveness was really for a lot of us, and, and not just forgiveness, but trying to reconcile as well. There were things that um, that I needed to forgive that had been done to me, and there were things that I had done to others that I needed to try to reconcile. Mm. And then ultimately, um Hopefully, the the end result would be some sort of redemption from various parts of of the larger community. Okay, so that book is uh, it's called Forebears, F O U R B E A R S, the myths of forgiveness. Um, so, as far as uh, life after hate, um, L A H, why why was the organization founded in the first place? Who was who were the founders, and why was it founded? Sure, um, some time ago, around two thousand and ten. A gentleman by the name of Arnold Michaelis um, thought of the concept of Life After Hate as an online magazine uh, where he would be addressing social justice issues and concerns that were relevant at the time. And Arnold himself was a was a, a person with a history with, in white supremacy groups, you know, was very vocal and active and responsible for, for bringing those groups to, to the Milwaukee area. 
Um, but he wanted to do something back. And in turn, Arnold started reaching out to other people in, in the world that he either knew from his previous life or that he was encountering through you know, current events and asking us to, to partner with him. And so uh, myself, Angela, Tony, Frankie, um, uh, Christian, TJ, uh, we, we were all a part of that. And we went to a summit against violent extremism in 2011. Uh, to participate in understanding how to counter violent extremism on an international level. And there we met a number of, of partners. But was, was, what was very unique about this summit was there were also victims of violent extremism. Hmm. Um, people like Joe Hicks, who lost both of her legs in the London Two bombings, or Joe Barry, who was now traveling the world with her, with the man who killed her father in an IRA bombing or Carrie Lamack, whose parents were killed um, or among the victims of the 9-11 attacks on the plane. Um, and we were able to share stories and share space and experiences and also learn about the work that everyone was doing across the globe. And, and when we came back from that conference in 2011 in July, we, we dedicated ourselves to launching a nonprofit under the name of Life After Hate. And in that nonprofit, our goal was to go into these go into these groups and pull men and women out uh, who wanted to exit hate groups, uh, such as white supremacy groups. So when, you say, uh, let me, let me, so when you say go into the groups, you mean uh, actively approach these groups, or you weren't just waiting for people to leave the groups? No, it's, uh, maybe, yeah, let me, that's, a, that's a, valid, uh, a valid question and, and a great way to clarify. For, for, for most of the time, um, we, you know, these groups know that we exist, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of time spent, you know, harassing us, right, and threatening us and whatnot. But within that is also an opportunity to create dialogue. And in that space, um, we do position ourselves in a, in a way that I think is very unique to, to the national community, which is we don't engage in, um, you know, chess around ideology or battle you know, um, points of view, what we do is just say, you know, if and when, if and when you're ready, uh, we're here. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in the same breath that they're bashing us among their circles, they're also, they're also letting people, it's like a public service announcement that they're doing for us. You know, there, there are always people in these groups who are questioning their membership and, and how far they're willing to go as things ramp up. And so oftentimes we've created this beacon where people know that we are and, and can, reach out to us. And so for the most part, we're, we don't do cold calls because it's just not safe. And right. it's not, um, right. it's not recommended. Uh, but we do make sure that when these things are happening, that we've positioned ourselves not to be seen as adversarial or condemning in nature. Um, although we don't concede our, our position. And so that I think has led to some of the success we've had in, in developing relationships with these men and women eventually come to us and stay with us over a long period of time in the transition. I'm interested in the, in the, the physical way this works. I mean, first of all, uh, you obviously have some physical headquarters. I mean, are you in Chicago? Where, is well, that... So we do have a physical, we do have physical space, but we would consider ourselves a, a virtual organization. Oh, okay. Um, our, we have one of my the person, uh, Robert Oro, who, um, lives in Sweden, or Tony, who lives in um, Canada. Andrew lives in, you know, another part of the country. I'm in Wisconsin. Uh, Frankie's in Idaho. Like, we are pretty, 
pretty uh, spread out, but we were able to use technology in much of the same way that these groups are using it to spread hate. We use technology to to spread forgiveness, reconciliation, and redemption. But you don't uh, you don't ever show up at. Uh, I mean, if there are demonstrations like the one in Charlottesville, and there are sometimes you know demonstrations like this where the extremist groups show up, do you show? Do do people from your organization show up at these groups or or set up yeah. some kind of a uh, presence there? So we um, we have, in fact, right after you know, if we get enough. Um, if we get enough notice uh, ahead of something, we will show up. But we're not there to we're not there to hold a sign, and we're not there to um, right. to 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 scream back across the vast pit of of dialogue um, that isn't being heard anyway. We're we're there as a resource. We're there to encourage communities to maintain their moral high ground, uh, and we're there to to let the other side know that hey. You know, we're we're here. You know, we're here for you. Um, so we, we're very mindful and careful on how we engage at these protests. We don't just we don't just jump in and uh, and start anti protesting. I mean, it's not that we don't see value in that. It's that's just not our methodology. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, obviously, it's not what you do and not what your group's, um, you know, principles are and uh, aims are. But uh do you feel that there is a necessity for people who oppose this kind of extreme hatred for them to get out and counter demonstrate? What do you think about that? Absolutely. Um, I think that there's a couple of things into this, in my opinion. One is that if nothing else can be done, we have to bear witness to atrocity. We have to bear witness to to injustice, um, bigotry, and racism, and hatred. We we have to. Otherwise. Uh, the people who are victimized and, and brutalized by this feel like they're alone. But we also want the other side to see that, that this will not go unattested. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we, the, the, these, the, I think in many ways the worst thing anyone could do is absolutely nothing. And I think that's how great atrocities have occurred in our history with the good people um, not recognizing, you know, what responsibility they had to insert themselves. The second thing that I think is important is that we need to insert a narrative into uh, that violent extremist narrative to, to create the balance, to, 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 re, to reestablish uh, uh, the balance between um, peacefulness and violence. You know, and without inserting that violence or inserting that narrative, excuse me, without inserting that narrative, uh, the communities don't they don't get the updated you know refreshed perspective mm-hmm. on what we can be doing next or different and so we have to insert that narrative and it does it does transform the way people are protesting the things that they say the signs that they make it it starts to contribute to a more meaningful uh, place in here you know and and we're encouraging these communities not to look or sound like or adopt the narratives of the people that they're challenging. You know that you can't defeat hate with hate. You know you, yeah, yeah, you that, can't be heard while screaming at someone who's screaming. You know those are t- types of strategies and tactics that we know don't work. Well, one thing almost just sort of adds. It's almost like one is pouring fuel onto the other one and just consuming both of them. I mean, uh, but it's difficult, right, to be the voice of peace in the midst of um, war. I mean, often the voice of peace gets uh, completely stepped on in the midst of uh, two violent sides, right? I mean, it's happened in history plenty of times. 
And I think what, what the grievances we're hearing, because we're, we, we pay attention to what grievances are coming from both sides and, and why both sides look so angry. And, and on both sides, there is a common grievance. And, it, and it's one, they don't feel that they're being heard or validated. Mm. And they don't feel that efforts have been validated or have led to significant change, especially in the face of what's going on right now in this climate in our country. In, in many ways, I think the, the left feels that for the last 50 years, they've been turning the other cheek in an effort to make advancements through civil rights. And then on the other side of things, they're feeling that it's because of civil rights, they're not being discriminated against, and they feel that the 50-year period has gone on long enough. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, when we see this emboldenedness of these far-right groups, in many ways it's because they see that the victory of this new administration is in some way shape or form, whether intended or not by this administration, but in some way, shape or form aligns with the pre-existing binary that these far-right groups would support in the past. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, when we can learn the grievances of what either side is complaining about, then we can try to address those grievances, but in a meaningful way. And, and that's why we have to discipline ourselves emotionally when engaging with these highly passionate circumstances, you know, and, and we're encouraging these protesters to try to embody, embrace, and, and reinvigorate their need to stay loyal to the moral high ground as it pertains to civil rights. Let me just ask a more prosaic question. How, how is your organization funded? Did you, do you get or have you gotten um, money from the federal government or the state government to, uh, to do what you're doing, or where does the money come from? Well, here's, here's an answer that most people won't expect. Since 2011 to 2017, we were just, we were, as my friend Tony says, we were operating out of the lint of our pockets. Hmm. And um, there, there were, you know, there were a, a few donations that came in here and there or you know, paid, uh, paid research opportunities for us, but it, it, the lights were kept on by our own efforts. And at the end of 2016, the Obama administration awarded Life After Hate a $455,000 grant hmm. to combat violence to counter violent extremism, CBE. And that comes through the Department of Homeland Security, CBE panel. So this is something that, that the uh, Obama administration gave you right before the inauguration of Trump. Correct. All right. And then as, once, the, once the guard changed, uh, instead of those funds being distributed, they were frozen with little to no explanation. Hmm. And then on June 23rd, um, on June 23rd, we received a notice from the Department of Homeland Security CVE committee that um, under a, a new review, um, our grant no longer met the, or qualified for, for funding. Now, that, that flies in the face of coming out. We were highlighted in the initial announcement as being the number one applicant of the other 33 applicants, and we were kind of touted as the model program for combating extremism here mm-hmm. on the far right in the in the U.S., so we were never given an opportunity to um, to, to see the new questions that they were asking. Uh, so we were never given, you know, they it was like they used the answer seat to a different test, but and, and now they're using different questions, but not letting us change our answers. To, but to, the uh, bottom line is, that. bottom line is, you never got the money, right? We never got the money, and then a few weeks later, Charlottesville happened, hmm. and the, the national news picked the story back up about our money being taken back and what just happened in Charlottesville is that's our focus and since then I will tell you that we have raised over $800,000 hmm. 
Um, and most of that funding has come from 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 Tom and Jane and Joe of Little Town USA in the form of a $5, $10, $25 donation. We've had a number of foundations step up, but out of that out of that $800,000, less than 200,000 of that has come from foundations, which means that the majority of that money has come from community members nationwide and internationally as well. Hmm. Uh- so back to so what is the process? Let's say somebody's in um, in some violent extremist group and um, they're scared to be in it or they're disgusted with the whole thing and they want to they want to get out of it and maybe move to some other place in their life. How do they? What's the process? How do they get in touch with your group and then what what physically? I mean, what actually happens next? Sure. So um, I'm just I'm just coming back from Florida where I'm, I was doing some uh, crisis intervention work with one of our newest um, exit people. And I flew in straight from New York um, unexpectedly to go see him because he was in serious crisis. There, there are several ways that this happens. Again, technology is one of the probably the, the, the most used way of accessing our services and, and getting messaging, whether it's through our, our um Website, Twitter, Facebook, mm. um, whatever you know, whatever that is. Um, but again, these groups know that we exist because you know, we're enemy number one, right? So of course, you always talk about enemy number one. So they they will seek us out, and um, when we get those messages, there's a number of steps that we have to take to evaluate whether we're being trolled, whether it's legitimate, or uh, you know if it's safe, uh, and how and how to approach that, and. Once we establish contact, whether it's through that text message, whether it's through response to an email, returning a phone call, then we start to try to assess whether or not this will require like a low-level intervention, maybe, you know, vet the person out, bring them into one of our secret support groups uh, that's meant for people who are just, you know, like the newcomer. Um, And then if we feel like the need is greater than that, then we will start to set up uh, strategy to go do face-to-face one-on-one interventions with this person, hmm. and so those you know we'll fly into there. We'll we'll try to you know set our shop up somewhere near where that person is at, and then you know and then we meet someone mutual and, and start to start to support and engage and, and listen a lot of listening. Um, and you know coming back from Florida just a few days ago, you know this person's been. This person has reject, been rejected from getting uh, medical care because of uh, his non-affiliation previously with white supremacy groups. Um, hmm. He, you know, he's having mental health problems. He's having medication problems. He's now sleeping in his his truck. His work hours have been cut. Um, you know, he needed support. He needed to know he wasn't alone. And so, um, although I could only stay 24 hours this time, I think the last time we stayed with him for three days. Um, and we, we talked, we ate food. Um, I was, I was sure to give him some resources and, um, you know, I, I bought him a couple of duffel bags so that he could, uh, put his clothes in a duffel bag instead of having them in these garbage bags that were falling apart, mm-hmm. bought him a cooler, keep fresh food and water, you know, and these things, man, the dollar and the return are, they're just, it's phenomenal. It's you, you showing that kind of kindness to someone who in who everyone else is rejecting and condemning um, 
I think it restores their faith and and their willingness and and how far they're willing to go to maintain this process of change. You know, it's it's not that we want people to sympathize uh, with uh, with a white supremacist. It's that we have to understand that underneath all of that is still a human being, mm-hmm. and so we we are validating his existence as a person you, and you, saying that you know at your worst we can still love you at your worst we'll still be here for you something they probably never heard before in fact something a lot of people never heard before so i mean you know i mean yeah it's just the kind of thing that uh i, I wonder sometimes if uh when you when you do these kinds of things like you fly down there and you're with this uh person and um other people you encounter like this, you must have the urge sometimes to actually set up a physical building to shelter people, right? We, we'd like to, but, you know, as a national program, um, it's just not possible. Right. The, the need, the need, we have to go where the needs are. And we're, we're kind of like first responders in many ways, you know, when, when, the, when, when these incidents, is, what, one thing I want the community to recognize is that every time a Charlotteville happens, People within those groups, whether they were there or not, or directly related or involved or witness, they start to question the membership because not everyone is willing to be that violent or extreme, although they think they are. Hmm. And then when those things occur, it creates this shock and this reverberation throughout the group, and people become vulnerable at that moment, right? And so having a safe place to land and to insert yourself into feeling that vulnerability is critical here, right? But in, because we're first responders, you know, things are happening in New York. Things are happening in Las Vegas. Things are happening in Florida. Things are happening, you know, in, in, on the West Coast. So we have to be mobile. And, and it really, our structure of being virtual right now gives us the flexibility to be able to do that. I see. Um, we, we, <clears throat> we are probably going to start, to be honest, maybe putting staff in strategic regions of the country, hmm. um, knowing where where the activity is, you know, like helping them set up and, and, and establish themselves, you know, maybe on the West Coast, maybe in the South. That way people are a little closer. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to fly to D.C. If I have someone in New York, I'm not going to fly to California. If I have someone in California, I think we're trying to be, a little more strategic in our, you know, our, our co-founders are willing to move like that, mm-hmm. you know, in proximity to uproot themselves, to place themselves near a proximity of, of where these things reoccur in order to be quicker at our response. But between planes and rentals and being virtual, we're, we're pretty mobile and we can respond pretty fast. And, and I, you know, I understand, look, everybody seems to understand, of course, that these uh, groups are that we're talking about here are racist or anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant. But um, my, my, when I look at the pictures of these demonstrations and when I see these people, you know, uh, talking on TV or whatever, it, what I see mostly is almost all men. I mean, what part does... Uh, misogyny play in all these groups? I mean, are they anti-female as well? I mean, how does that work? Well, you know, Angela, one of our co-founders recently just, um, and I think it's up on our website, just wrote a piece about misogyny. And we recently did a summit with uh, foreigners where we were we were bringing men and women that we've helped support or pull out of these groups together for the first time, kind of like in a low-key, relaxed conference where we could all get to know each other, engage in some training, um, figure out who wants to be more active in the organization, and, and just meet and greet. 
And while we were there, Angela was talking about the, the effects of how they were treated. Um, I think it goes without saying that when you are full of hate and, and you are anti-Semitic or you're you know, bigoted in nature, that doesn't stay contained in a neat little area of your life. That, that type of characteristic, that type of being, it, 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 it kind of spreads to other areas and infects other areas of your life. And so Angela, and, and you know, with my past experience as a gang member, we, while, while the men were the face of the organization, there were, there were always women attached to it who were just potential to be just as violent, just as active, hmm. but who were also beaten, who were also sexually assaulted, who were also um, talked down to, controlled. Um, you know, human trafficking is a very real thing of women in these movements. Um, you know, while we talk about ourselves as having so much pride, we don't treat each other or, or our counterparts with that pride. We, we it, as most people can assume, um, the women in these groups uh, contribute, but are also abused um, and held and many times against their will uh, among these groups, and often stay out of fear and control and isolation. It's hmm. it's a it's a it's a violent, extreme version of domestic violence, but that can be the violence can be shared among many men directed at a single woman. Um, and, and over a group of women. So it is a very real dynamic in these groups where, where these women are, um, are brutalized and, and scared and intimidated and threatened and killed. Let me, uh, let me, uh, there's a, there's a something I'll get your opinion about something. I, I read an article in the paper recently about, uh, the, there's an increased amount of anti-Semitism in Germany. Uh, mostly it's coming, although they have their homegrown, you know, in Germany, nativist, uh, violent groups. Uh, there's uh, anti-Semitism among a lot of immigrants who are from the Middle East and Palestine, which is all a complicated issue, to say the least. But what something came up with, oh, somebody came up with over there, is um, that if they could bring these immigrants, uh, they not bring them, but make them go on mandatory visits to concentration camps. Um, and there's a lot of uh, different opinions over in Germany. I mean, part of the school program, apparently, over there, which I learned about by reading this article, is if you just a, a school child over there, Sooner or later, you're going to be brought to a concentration camp as part to learn about part of the history of your country and what happened. But now they're encouraging people, um, or more than encouraging, they're, they're thinking of mandatory visits to concentration camps. But there's a lot of people in, in Germany who disagree with that, who say just bringing people to a place like that or lecturing people on how bad this is won't make any difference. What's your opinion about that? You know, I think I think um, in, in my my perception of what what countries like Germany have done is they've been pretty transparent about their history. I think they've been straightforward. They, in many ways, they've owned, you know, there are a lot of lessons the U.S. could learn from how they've approached the World War II era. Um, you know, like they don't have, they don't have the equivalent of, um, you know, of the rebellion like the U.S. does in these statues. You know, there, there aren't any Confederate type heroes. Um, or the equivalent of that in Germany, you know, statues of Germany. And, you know, they, they, they haven't promoted it, but they haven't hidden what's happened mm -hmm. um, in many ways. And I think dialogue is important. I don't know about forcing anyone to do anything, but creating an opportunity where those things can happen. You know, when, when people come here, they have to learn about U.S. history and the Constitution. You know, I think in, in many ways, 
exposing them to a, a broader narrative of what the history of this country has been like. And I think those type of conversations are important. But again, I know most people don't appreciate being forced to do anything yeah. um, as a condition of something. But uh, that's not to say that there, there can't be value in sharing that experience or creating that, an environment where that learning can happen. But um, I think here in the U.S. we're probably sensitive to things that are kind of forced upon us. You know, right. That's, I know other countries that's a way of living, but here we're very sensitive to, uh, to that. So I'm not quite sure how, how they might respond to that. Hmm. The uh, um, now the the hatred and the violent extremism and the white supremacy, all this stuff has a like long history. And in fact, it sort of almost is the history of the United States. It didn't come out of the blue, in other words. But it seems to me, since right. Trump was campaigning, and since he's gotten elected, uh, everything has been magnified. Uh, a lot of the roaches have come right out into the into the light of the kitchen. You know what I mean? They, they were hiding, but now they feel free to walk around the house all over the place. And pardon my uh, opinionated feeling here, but that's the way I see it. So, uh, what do you think about um, Trump and his uh, his his? Um, has had you hold him sort of responsible for the emergence or the? Uh, so for, for the like expansion of this extremism? You know, we've talked, uh, me and my organization have talked about this quite a bit, you know, all, all the team players, you know, all the co-founders, the board, we spent a lot of time talking about this. And one thing that Tony said that really, that really stays with me is that we, we can't blame a single person for the state of affairs in the United States. Right. The, the state of affairs of the United States has existed for quite some time. Um, the and, and while we would like to say it all revolves around what Trump has done, you got to understand for Trump to do some of the things that he is doing that people have so many problems with, it takes a lot of support to do it and to get it passed and to get it through. Um, meaning that there's an entire there's entire committees out there, there's entire segments of this of this administration that are, are, are standing by or encouraging or signing off on these things to happen, right. um, which is n- nothing new in this country. What I said before, I think that whether it was this administration's goal or not, these far-right groups see this victory as a restoration of a pre-existing binary. And so they felt it, it was in alignment with their own views. They felt it was it was supportive of... of of how they have chosen to see the world and their community and themselves, you know, and the dog whistle, you know, of many things is, is more, is more like a ship's horn, right? It's, it's loud to people who, who understand what it means, but for those who are kind of um, lucky enough to be ignorant to the climate of what's happening, um, it sounds innocent enough. It sounds mm. fair enough. It sounds legitimate enough. But for those of us in the work, we see the slippery slope of some of these terms. You know, like when we talk about making America great again, that became a term that started to have sinister meaning attached oh, yeah. to it. Well, again, I can't speak to the intention of that, but mm-hmm. I can tell you what the result of that was. And And it's only supported by these far-right groups who are saying that's exactly what we've been saying all along. So I think in many ways, you know, affirmative action was was put into place because this climate existed before so openly. Mm-hmm. All that affirmative action did was put, put a lid. It dampened the steam, but the steam was still building. And so right. in many ways, the only thing that has changed is that we no longer feel that we our hands and tongues are tied with um, politically correct speech. 
but the sentiment, you have to understand that this, this, this election symbolizes this underlying sentiment of a growing population who now feel that they have someone who is voicing their concerns and points of view. Um, but they didn't start with this administration, and no. they won't end with this administration. Well, me, but I'm not saying that that's not to say that I, I do feel that there have been times where this administration has abdicated from its responsibility to take a strong, clear stance against certain acts of violence that have been occurring in the U.S., and, and it does seem to, to be reminiscent of a time where uh, while one group of people are being excused for their behaviors, others are being condemned for the exact same behaviors. We're sort of running out of time here, and uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to ask you, so um, let's say this is a, a fantasy, obviously. Uh, maybe my last question to you. Uh, we're, we're listening, by the way, to um, Sammy Rangel, that's R-A-N-G-E-L, who's the executive director of Life After Hate, Life After Hate. And, uh, and in a little bit, we'll ask you how to get in touch with the group if anybody wants to contribute or has problems themselves and wants to get in touch. Let's say you had half an hour with this man. I mean, not that he listens to anybody or even knows what he's talking about half the time, but let's say you had half an hour with Trump. What would you say to him? To be honest, I, wanna, I, wanna, I would rather want to understand him more. Hmm. Um, I, so I'm not sure that I would spend a whole lot of time talking. I'd, I'd want to understand more so that I know how to come back home and implement strategies um, that would be effective in, in the work that we're engaging in. You know, because t- to be honest, I can't claim to understand him. I, I see what I see on TV. I hear everything else that everyone else hears. But I would apply the same strategy, the same science and research and approach to to that conversation that I do when I'm trying to help someone exit, you know, um, any other type of group that is causing problems to them in the world around them. You know, to be honest, is I don't agree with most, if anything, that comes out of that, that office. Mm-hmm. However, I still recognize that I, if, if I condemn him, I'm... I'm not staying true to my values and my principles uh, in the face of what I think works and helps people change. Um, I would love to have an opportunity to understand him more um, because that would give me what I need to come back here and hopefully apply. Like, I have to learn to speak Trump. I have to learn to speak Republican. I have to learn to speak Democrat. I have to learn to speak rich. I have to be bilingual. and, And those things help me come back and set up systems that are effective within those organizations. I want to work within this org, with, within this government, not from the outside, but because I've recognized through my personal and professional experience that the only way to make real effective change is from within the system. But I have to understand that system in order to be able to do that. Okay. Um, Sammy Rangel, who is the executive director of Life After Hate, and uh, how can people get in touch uh, with the group? Um, our website, lifeafterhate.org. Um, our donate platform is right there on the home page. You can get to know about each of us. There's, you can learn about the founders and the active staff right now um, who are in there. Our timeline is up there. And, of course, we're on Facebook under Life After Hate. And, of course, our Exit USA program, which is on Life After Hate um, website and, and on Facebook. And that Exit USA page is for men and women looking for help for themselves or for others who might be stuck 
and or looking for a way out of these hate groups. So we're not hard to find. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for uh, giving me your time this morning. I appreciate it. And thank you for lending your voice to our voice. We appreciate that. Okay. Thank you, Sammy Rangel. Okay. We're going to be back in a little bit. I went walking, driven a highway, I saw the king, and in the skyway, I saw the glory, a golden valley, this land was made for you and me, this land is your land, this land is my land, from California to New York. Uh, a remarkable person Mr. Rangel is and uh, what an incredible organization when you think about it maintaining that sort of <clears throat> benevolent middle ground to try to understand people uh, and, um, and to help people like one on one to pull away from an entire lifetime of hatred it's really uh, impressive to me Meanwhile, speaking of uh, Mr. Trump, uh, there was an article in the Times the other day. I don't have time to read this whole thing. I hope I do. And it's called Now on Stage, Stormy Daniels, a strip club and a presidency meet after dark. This is about this woman, this um, a porn film actress um, and stripper who uh, was paid money by Trump several years ago to uh, shut her mouth about um, uh, sexual uh, encounter she had with him, quote unquote, sexual encounter, for which he was probably paid too. And he has his Greenville, South Carolina. This is from Matt Flegenheim in the New York Times. One by one, the patrons lurch to the stage's edge, summoned by the siren song of stale arena rock and toplessness. A sea of large men with small bills and slight smiles, plainly convinced that America had been plenty great for some time now. It was a special kind of Saturday, and the cover charge showed $20 at the door, double the usual, though far from the uh, reported executive, that's Trump rate. Um, <clears throat> pig, here's a quote. Pigs get fat, hogs get, um, hogs get slaughtered, said Jay Levy. <laughs> Jay Levy. Oh, no, not a Jewish guy. The Trophy Club's owner, this is the name of the, uh, of the uh, strip club. It's called the Trophy Club. Um, Mr. Levy, explaining the relative bargain for guests, um, I've got to take care of my people. I'll take advantage of the situation, but not my people. So he's not charging um, too much for regulars. His people on this evening were a peculiar lot, regulars, newcomers, and at present the world's most important porn star, with her presidential ties and a reported six-figure reason not to confirm them. 
traveling for now without a proper assistant. Nobody wants to be seen with me right now, the performer, known as Stormy Daniels, said. Uh, did you ever see a picture of Stormy Daniels? Departing from the article here. The, uh, the one, there's a picture of her with Trump uh, back a ways, right? I guess when he was with her a little bit. All the women that he's been reported, that he's been with, all the women that, I, that we can see that he's been with or reported to have been with, including his daughter, they all seem exactly the same. There's some kind of cross between brainless beauty queen, you know, and uh, inflated sex doll, always with some, and there's always that unspoken contract between him and these women. This includes right up until, uh, including his wife right now, uh, a swap. There's a, there's a swap of sex and glamour that he gets for a lot of money and possessions that they get. This is the deal with him. It's amazing how, um, how his pathology is so rigid and predictable. I mean, all these women look exactly the same, almost look completely interchangeable. Um, they, anyhow, so it was, the article goes on, on the anniversary of the inauguration with a government shutdown consuming the Capitol with cities across the country, including this one, that's New York, hosting, rather Greenville, South Carolina, hosting the women's rallies condemning President Trump as an emblem of misogyny, that this national moment delivered a glut of customers, journalists, and a notable film, adult film actress to a perhaps inevitable fate. Uh, The music came on, the clothes came off, and an airport strip club claimed its piece of the American presidency. This trophy club is uh, uh, right outside the airport uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, where if you've ever been you've driven to an airport and you park on the outskirts or driven around the outskirts of any uh, city airport, there's always uh, the sleazy motels and, the, um, and uh, the strip joints and other places like that, the, the weeds growing. It's a kind of a excuse me, point of expression, no man's land or every man's land where almost anything happens, right? Um, so according to the article, whoa, came the cry from the crowd a couple of hundred or so as the show began. Whoa, every White House trail, every White House leads a trail to venues strange and varied. Global summits, hard scrabble swing state spots, a golf course in South Florida, On Saturday, the Trophy Club was almost certainly making its executive debut, one night only. Better known as Stephanie Clifford to some on stage, 38-year-old headliner was setting off on what is being called the Making America Horny Again Tour, (laughs) capitalizing on her spin through a Trump news cycle. According to the Wall Street Journal, Ms. Clifford was paid $130,000 in hush money shortly before the 2016 election to conceal a past relationship with Mr. Trump. In a 2011 interview with In Touch magazine, <laughs> made public in recent days, Ms. Clifford is, quoting as, is quoted as saying that she and Mr. Trump had the sexual encounter, a sexual encounter, one time, right? In 2006, months after Mr. Trump's wife, Melania, Melania gave birth to their son, and uh, I'm assuming Trump paid her to have sex in the first place. I mean, a 24-year-old uh, stripper and um, porn movie actress uh, and uh, a huge pork-like much older man uh, are not going to have sex unless there's a lot of money involved. Uh, in fact, I heard some vague figure that cost him $10,000 to have sex with her. Um, anyhow, poor Donnie. I mean, you know... Is anybody ever going to love him for himself? I don't think so. Maybe it's too late for him. 
Maybe that's what he really wants. Somebody to love him just for himself, right? Um, now, that, this is, could be an interesting biopic, right? Young Donald in love. One time in his life, he, uh, he loved somebody and there was no money involved and it didn't make any difference. She didn't love him. But I digress. Uh, a lawyer for Mr. Trump, Michael D. Cohn, whom the journal identified, the Wall Street Journal, as the person who helped arrange the payment, said in an email earlier this month that Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump vehemently denies any such occurrence. Of course, it doesn't matter what he says about anything at all anymore. Does it matter what anybody says? <laughs> Trump, like, like, like uh, Mr. Rangel said earlier, this stuff doesn't come out of the blue. It's part of the country's history and its cultural makeup. But uh, now you can say anything. You can do anything. It doesn't make any difference anymore. There is no moral center and words don't mean anything anymore. With the advent of Trump uh, and the way he uses language and the way he changes his mind, it doesn't really make any difference what he says or what anybody says. Um, and this whole thing about sex, I mean, there's nothing new about presidents before and during office, maybe after office, having affairs, even numerous affairs. I mean, Kennedy was famous for this. So was Johnson and Clinton, of course. And uh, but uh, I think probably uh, little Donnie here is probably the only one who had to fork over big bucks to uh, have these affairs anyhow or to get married. I mean, who would marry? Well, you know, why be so judgmental? It's hard not to be, though. Pressed on Saturday, <laughs> pressed on Saturday, Mr. Flegenheimer, the author of this article, um, must have had a lot of fun. Ms. Clifford pressed on Saturday. Ms. Clifford responded to any question about Mr. Trump with a wordless grin and a shaking head. She denies all of this, by the way, because she signed. She got $130,000 to deny it. Most attendees did not much care, subsisting in the club's smoky kaleidoscope of flesh. Women swaggered by in tights, leatherette and heels that could dent metal, brushing past a vending machine that spits cigarettes. Bartenders shooed. Two stingy visitors um, from the good seats returning $15 in singles for a $5 drink order paid with a 20 and mouthing lyrics, the lyrics to Super Freak. Dancers pawed playfully at their prey, flipping their hair at patrons as if it was a fishing line. Um, let's see. Um, other requests were less typical of the place. Suzanne Coe, a local pub owner, hoped that Miss Clifford might sign her copy of Fire and Fury by Michael Wolfe, the lacerating, if error, uh, spec insider account of the Trump administration. A man in the United States Navy cap said he had flown in from Houston, right, where he had seen Miss Clifford perform previously. Many customers were disinclined to give their names because, well, they were spending their Saturday night at a strip club by the airport. Um, above the bar, festooned with balloons of red, white, and blue, one TV was tuned to a Trump-themed panel on CNN as a government shutdown clock ticked in the bottom right corner. Beside the stage, the president's face looked out from an old picture mugging besides Miss Clifford. He saw her live, an ad for the event read, using the same image, you can, too. The region is Trump country in a state he carried by 14 points in a county he won by 25 points. Um, but even among those who might who might be expected to tut tut an extramarital encounter and covert payment by the future president, the story of Miss Clifford has struggled to break through in, in recent days. Shut down Russia, North Korea, a porn star hardly rates. 
this is just a news story. I don't know if it's accurate. The Reverend Franklin Graham, a Trump supporter, told NBC. But broadly, he allowed, our country has got a sin problem. What about, uh, what about uh, throughout all of this stuff with Trump and uh, Stormy Daniels and all these affairs and his misogyny and his, his filthy mouth and his behavior? What about Mr. Monogamy? You know, Mr. Spence, Christian family man, Mike Spence, Mike Pence. I mean, it must be it must be hell for Mr. Pence waiting around for Trump to destruct himself or to get taken away or leave so he can be president. I mean, uh, if if Pence means all this stuff about being, you know, so monogamous and so Christian values, um, you have to wonder about uh, does he have any self-respect? Well, no, he doesn't, of course. He wants to be the president. Anyhow, the article goes on. At, a, at, a, at the women's rally in downtown Greenville hours before the show, Miss Clifford's appearance registered only slightly. Trump unfaithful to wives and country, a sign read beside the picture of the two. Um, Mr. Levy, the club owner of the trophy club with slicked hair and a thick goatee, oh man, said his aim was entirely apolitical. I'm strictly, I'm strictly, how can I get lightning in a bottle, he said. He's in it for the money. He read the Wall Street Journal article about Mrs. Clifford, whom he had known before and was compelled to reach out, <laughs> inviting her once more to the bar he calls Cheers with Breasts. Mr. Levy um, declined to say what he was paying her, though financial considerations dotted the, uh, the club's Facebook page during the week. Um, Miss Clifford said she was receiving her quote-unquote normal amount. She performed two shows, elaborate burlesque acts, around 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., and that was that. In between uh, shows, Miss Clifford, who said she had not danced this, since the summer, mingled with well-wishers, photo seekers, and if they approached, reporters. Imagine coming back when you're the most insecure, she said, of her return. It's the only time I've ever gone on stage and was actually scared. Uh, she was asked uh, what it's been like to be Stormy Daniels over the past week. Stressful, she said, and amusing. Next in line, a man in a cap was waiting, sliding behind her for a picture. Miss Clifford dutifully removed her top. The man grabbed at her front, tentatively at first. The brim of his star-spangled hat reading, Make America Great Again, nearly grazed her blonde hair. Miss Clifford smiled again beside a well-stocked jug of tips. <sighs>
I can show you a good time. Do you wanna have fun? Fun. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. Hail to the Chief. Hey, Big Spender. This is Mike Fader. If you want to get in touch with me, go to my website, Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. And as always, thanks for listening. I will be back next week. Well, it's all Tomorrow will bring Maybe a damn man